This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We, uh, of course, uh, heard little about the uh, situation uh, earlier on uh, on the mountain, I guess over about 33-hour standoff uh, with a gentleman who was uh, in some sort of distress. And uh, police just kind of hung in there and and waited it out and saw an opening here and thought that uh, this is a scenario where uh, lives aren't in danger at this point and see where it goes. And as a result, uh, after 33 hours, uh, they were uh, successful in neutralizing the scenario and uh, everyone getting the help they need, no one hurt. How does all of this unfold? How is this done? What is the art of this? Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Gary Ellis, head uh, Justice Studies Program University of Guelph at Humber, retired superintendent, Toronto Police Service, uh, and uh, many years of investigative uh, experience. And Gary is with us now. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Hello, Scott. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. So uh, what kind of person is needed to do this job? Well, it starts off with the frontline police officer has to be trained properly, uh, when they get the first call, actually, it goes to the call taker, the people in the radio room. It all starts there, whatever the call is, and they start rolling out the resources, but they have to do an assessment first. So the frontline officer gets there, and they need to be trained enough to recognize that uh, you can pull back, you contain the person, and uh, you can call for the right resources and help. And then there's a whole team that unfolds uh, right in there, right down to the person who's actually negotiating and talking to the person. And they're the most highly trained uh, when it comes to dealing with personalities who may uh, have mental health or substance uh, issues going on, and they need some support. What goes into that decision? Um, and often that has to be made uh, very, very quickly, often in split seconds. What, um, what goes into analyzing, right down to the frontline officer, what goes into analyzing, we've got a scenario here, um, maybe, maybe safety uh, isn't at risk at this point, but we, you know, there's something different here. How, is that, how does that process? Well, you never take safety uh, for granted. You have to make sure there's no one else in danger in the house there's neighbors you don't know if they have weapons what weapons they have you don't know uh, if they are planning to hurt themselves or uh, you know uh, suicide by cop is uh, the term that's used you don't know if they want to take somebody with them so there's a lot of front-end assessment has to go into determining are they alone are they contained can you seal the house off to make sure they don't uh, do anything outside are they armed uh, do you need to evacuate the neighbors? So there's some real upfront safety concerns. And uh, even to the point of do you actually physically approach the house or do you try to make contact through telephone or otherwise? Uh, obviously, in this scenario, and again, we, we, you know, the, the, there's not too much we can address with this. It's, it's an investigation. And, and, and frankly, it's, it's at this point none of our concern because the safety, uh, you know, the threat has been eliminated uh, if there ever was one. Uh, 33 hours, that's a long time to hunker down. What's that right. process like? And, and, and obviously one person can't be doing this continuously, or I don't know, maybe they can. Explain that part of it to us. Yeah, it's hugely resource intensive. I mean, you've got to maintain the perimeters. There's an inner perimeter, an outer perimeter. You have a command post. It's all about people. So the, the financial cost is huge. Um, the emotional toil is huge as well because it's 99% boredom for the people who are outside. And if things go bad, it's 1% sheer terror. Um, 
the actual negotiators, they're in it for the long haul, uh, the ones who are actually speaking to the person, because they establish the rapport, they establish the understanding, they get to know each other, and uh, the communication pathway is open, and it's difficult, it's not unheard of, but it's difficult to hand it off to somebody else in the negotiation. Um, but this is done. Normally, you, you rotate 12-hour shifts throughout this thing, uh, but there's a risk to that if there's a rapport already being established. So it's a long, hard slog for everyone involved, but then again, there's a life involved here, and uh, how much is uh, the price of a life? How would you do that handoff? Uh, you'd introduce a, a, the second or the third party into the conversation and uh, do an overlap. Ah. You'd have two people talking, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as time goes on, the, the primary would be stepping back, the secondary would be establishing the rapport, and uh, you could even involve another person, but the more people, the more confusing, more confusing the messaging. Right. Um, how can you tell if this person is on the verge of hurting themselves or if this person wants to talk, this person wants to uh, share something with you? Um, well, that comes out of the conversation, and that's the magic uh, that, uh, that has to take place. Um, and the training, the training, they're, they're actually hostage negotiated, negotiator training. The Canadian Police College runs courses, the FBI runs courses, local police agencies run courses, and they're highly specialized. They've got the psychological background, and they actually uh, know uh, when to uh, act. They know what's going on generally and hopefully. And um, at the same time, they're the ones who know that if uh, this is escalating or there's danger, the police actually have to do dynamic entry and uh, either save the person or save someone else. So this could go from zero to 100 in a split second. It sure can. A lot of these hostage or, sorry, it's a barricade. Some of them are turned into hostage situations. They, They last four to nine hours which is a long time in itself. Mm-hmm. But many of them also uh, will go as long as this one, uh, 33 hours or more. And uh, that is a real art, patience, excellent training that police officers who can sustain that for that long. Um, many will ask who obviously don't know the ins and outs of all of this or, or the specific case, why not just go in? I mean, a situation like this, you know, one person, it appeared in this house, why not just go in? Yeah, and that's a judgment call. Very often that happens. I would suggest most of these cases, uh, the police are able to gain entry, secure the person from hurting themselves or causing any other problems. Uh, but that's to be assessed by the negotiators who are involved. If the person's a danger to themselves, they have the ways, means, and intent to hurt themselves, um, then why take the chance that the risk increase, increases exponentially if you do a dynamic entry, not just to the person, uh, but to the police officers doing the entry, mm-hmm. uh, a great number of police officers are injured or uh, unfortunately killed um, doing dynamic entry. So that is a high-risk endeavor in and of itself. Uh, would they have known what's in the house before deciding to y- negotiate for this period of time? And how would they know that? Well, that's part of the negotiating process. So we don't know how the original call took place. Was it the person or was it somebody else? With somebody else, there's a great deal of information you gather from the other person. Right. If it's the person in the house themselves, um, that's part of your discussion. The discussion isn't just negotiation. It's getting background. What's going on? Who are you? This is who I am. 
Um, you know, what's in the house? Do you have any weapons? Uh, how do you feel about things right now? And um, then as far as the, you need to know the layout of the house, and very often that's obtained uh, by neighboring houses that are similar. Mm. Um, you know, you do a walkthrough, you map it out, you look at uh, points of entry and uh, where uh, the person lines of sight and so on and so forth. So it's a real complex issue. Wow. Um, if the person is in the house by themselves, uh, obviously there's less a threat than if they have hostages or, or, or such or other people uh, in the house. Um, that being said, where is the threat there? What is it threat that this person's going to hurt themselves? Yeah, well, there's weapons. As far as uh, firearms, we know is a major threat in itself. You have to determine that because that can be uh, used on themselves, but it also can be used outside and then cover quite a distance. Um, obviously, knives, um, explosives, um, explosive materials, um, natural gas and things such as this. Um, there's a whole range of situations that you try to cover over. And, uh, you know, in these cases, overreaction is justifiable, as I like to say. Underreaction is inexcusable. So uh, mm -hmm. if you're feeling that there's something really dangerous in there or this person has a ways and means to make it dangerous, fire, um, then you uh, judge yourself very carefully and take the time to make sure you do it right. Uh, with something like this, uh, and again, we don't know all the details of, of this scenario, but would they give it a certain amount of time or would they just take as much time as they needed? As you said, there's a lot of resources going on here. You have to weigh the threat, I, I presume. But, uh, you know, is there a magic time where you think, you know, all right, you can only do this so long and, and then we're just following each other here? Well, that pressure is always there. But the right way is to the time it's going to take to do it right is the time you need. And, uh, you know, we think in terms of lives first property and finance a second, and that should be preeminent. Uh, you know, if you're driven by shift change, uh, then you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, so would, um, how long would it take all of this to be put in place? Uh, as you said, a lot of people involved initially say there's, you know, uh, one car, two officers inside that go, or inside the car that, that take the initial call. And then, you know, the rest of, uh, of the, the process is put in motion. How long does it take for all of that to get set up? Because obviously well, these frontline officers have to contain it until all, everything else is in place. Sure. It, it, well, it actually starts with the call taker, who's not normally a police officer, but they're trained as well. Um, if they get a sense of what's going on, they actually start the resources rolling. So immediately. Um, the first officers get there, they, they actually, their job is to contain the situation, to assess it, uh, to communicate really effectively to everybody else what is going on, and to make sure that everyone they can make safe is made safe as quick as possible, contain the scene, and um, get some sort of cover and concealment for themselves. That's really the initial. So it happens very, very, very quickly. And then it expands exponentially as you see the situation developing. As I said, most of these are settled when the frontline officers arrive. Um, you know, the person either comes to the door or is talked out very quickly. Um, but uh, when you hit these long-standing uh, barricaded situations, um, you will see it will start immediately and it will expand exponentially. 
Ken, is there how, how much difference is there between and obviously all officers have this training they you know in crisis scenarios and in 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 judgment calls and such, but the person who's actually called in to do uh, the the talking and the actual negotiation can anyone do that or does it take a special type of person? It takes a special type of person. They're they're usually hand picked uh, in Toronto. Uh, when I was uh, in Toronto, we really only had two. Um, experts. Others were trained, uh, the emergency task force or the SWAT team, as people like to call them. Um, every one of those people receives some sort of training, but the experts are usually housed in those units, and they're trained to a very, very high level. And um, like I said, they're few and far between to get the experts, but uh, when they engage, it's quite amazing to watch them work. I can imagine that it must be incredibly exhausting. It is because uh, a slip of the tongue could cause a light. So you have to be on all the time. And it is exhausting. It's stressful. Um, you know, uh, it's stressful to, for the officer who's doing the negotiating, but everybody else who's also doing the negotiating, um, you know, they, they have that person's life in their hands. Um, is it the sort of thing where you can predict, I guess with experience, it's like anything, you, you can see what direction something is going in. Uh, are there scenarios where you think it's going one way and it goes a complete 180 and vice versa? Or is the experience enough that most of the time you know which direction these are going in and how bad it is? Well, you know, it's dynamic. Um, you know, you've had the one where the person goes quiet on you. And uh, you finally do a dynamic entry. You give it a lot more time, and they're uh, they're no longer living. Yeah. Or you do the dynamic entry, and they're curled up in the closet. Yeah. You know? So uh, these things are so variable, and that's it. that's the great danger, and also the great responsibility of doing it right, having the training, and taking the time because they are so dynamic. Um, if you rush into anything, you could be uh, putting the police officer's lives in danger or the person themselves. How often does this happen? Would we be surprised, Gary, at, at how often these, these skills are used? Yes, you would be surprised. I mean, the long-haul ones you normally hear about the media, um, but the short ones, the ones that last around four hours, uh, very often you never hear about them. Uh, I'm sure statistics are kept by police agencies, um, but uh, they happen quite frequently. Uh, you know, in, in society we have a lot of people with uh, mental health issues yeah. under a lot of stress, and uh, the police are the ones called out to uh, sort of mitigate that and get them to help. Is a large, uh, and, you know, I guess some are bad guys that are being held up uh, somewhere or holding up somewhere uh, versus mental illness or, or suicidal situations. Would the majority of it be mental illness? Uh, well, you get a combination of the two as well, uh, Scott. So this is where you have to be careful. I mean, you have the out-and-out criminals, like if you can think back in Toronto uh, many years ago, the Rainbow Hotel, where the guys bunker themselves yeah. in the hotel, they'll dug a hole, and there's a shootout with the police. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're robbers and out-and-out criminals and, uh, you know, shooting police officers and so on. Uh, that's uh, the bad uh, hostage-taking. That's where decisions are made. Uh, can we talk them out? Uh, can we wait them out, or do we have to take them out, you know? Yeah. And uh, they're the worst of the worst. But I would suggest most of them are people under incredible amount of stress, either having a mental health episode or suffering from a mental health illness, uh, where um, they've lost touch with what's going on or they've just given up hope. 
Unbelievably, uh, unbelievable. Uh, what's it like teaching something like this? Um, well, it's, it's difficult. There's great responsibility because you can't teach every scenario. And, uh, you know, if you try to use the phrase common sense, there's nothing common about common sense. Yeah. It's something we use when we're teaching it. So what you have to do is really put some tight parameters around it. Um, what you really teach is the roles and responsibilities, which I'm sure the Hamilton police uh, did, uh, right from the call taker, right through to the hostage negotiator, to the SWAT team, uh, dynamic entry teams. So there's multiple multiple level of trainings at the individual that comes together as the whole. And uh, when they set up a command post, they're using the incident command process, which is really a military process of mm-hmm. command post and delegating uh, duties and responsibilities. So the training is incredible. Um, people would be shocked at the amount of training that goes into it um, foundationally and then actually for unrolling one of these incidents. And they are low-frequency incidents as far as the long haul. So um, you don't get a lot of practice in real life. So you've got to do it right. How has this process evolved? How is it different now than it was, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well, um, first of all, most, uh, and it's mandated under the provincial uh, adequacy standards that you have specially trained um, emergency response teams, um, you know, for special weapons teams, as we call them, but they're, they're more than weapons. These, these people try not to use their weapons. Uh, they intervene using all sorts of alternative means. So that's mandated in every police agency. That was not 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. Um, the actual training requirements are huge. There's uh, provincial requirements on mental health training. It was not understood. Certainly when I started as a police officer, um, the mental health training was non-existent you just looked at the behavior and decide if it was criminal or not and if somebody was a little bit off you take them to a psychiatric hospital now um, there's a great deal of understanding with the mental health training sensitivity um, we can always do more though and uh, this is what we talk to and teach to that we, we're never there you know it's just like a long drive you never actually get there hmm. you're there uh, there's somewhere else to go so uh, that being said, after 33 hours with the Hamilton Police Service in this standoff, uh, once person is out and everyone's safe, what, what's the feeling on the front lines? Um, initial exhaustion. There's, uh, there's stress because uh, keep in mind for 33 hours, and uh, again, we've probably rotated through different people in shifts, uh, there's something known as hypervigilance. Uh, the adrenaline is running, you're pumped up, yet you can't do anything with it. And then all of a sudden it's over, and when it's over, it's just, it's over yeah. for most of the people. And now there's the unwinding, and this, you know, deals with all these other things that police officers deal with, is dealing with stress, uh, you know, we know about post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, something known as vicarious trauma. So, you know, the, the police officers have to take care of themselves when it's all over, because it's going from a very big high, which uh, is anticipation, to nothing. Wow, and you could see how um, uh, good mental conditioning needed all around for this sort of thing. I mean, it's just, it, like you said, it's an ongoing discussion, an ongoing battle, isn't it? It absolutely is. Absolutely is. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't think we'll ever quite get there. We'll never quite satisfy everybody, and that's the whole point. We just have to be uh, involved with continually improving how we do these things. Dr. Gary Ellis has been with us, head of the Justice Studies Program, University of Guelph at Humber, retired superintendent of the Toronto Police Service. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Let's uh, bring up Ton- uh, Donald Trump. It's time for another edition of This Week in Trump, or Twit as we like to call it. Has it got to the point where it doesn't matter what Donald Trump says, so many people are just put off by who he is and what he is and how he conducts himself and his divisive nature and BS, flim-flam man kind of character. Uh, does it ma- Even if he said, uh, breathe air, it's good for you, would you say, no, I refuse to and hold my breath? Has it got to that point? Some uh, the White House are, are claiming even the FBI is biased when it comes to uh, Donald Trump. And really, at the end of the day, does he have anyone to blame but himself? Uh, you know, well, let's bring in Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit, uh, and ask his take on all of this. Hi, Michael. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So has it got to the point where people are just so tired of this guy? It's like the boy that cried wolf. They don't even listen to him anymore. They just say no. Uh, well, you know, those who dislike him, absolutely, and those who like him, and I don't think there's any middle ground anymore, uh, with the exception of me, uh, or just don't, don't, don't care and, and can't get enough of it. So, so you have you have two poles on this one, I think, where you have those who, you know, Donald Trump could say the sky is uh, blue and they'll argue with him because Donald Trump uh, to, to them is unable to tell the truth about absolutely anything. And then you'll have the others who he could say the sky is green to and they'd go out and believe it. So is Donald Trump getting anything done? Is he a good president? Look, you know, he's, he's, we're less than a year into his presidency, and it would be very unfair of critics or fans to uh, try and uh, write the history books at this point. But if you look at it, you know, he, he's had some successes. He, he's implemented parts of his campaign platform already uh, with uh, moving the embassy to Israel, which to me is a very, very, very important issue. And I hope that uh, Canadians on both sides of the political spectrum will follow suit uh, with the president's leadership on that issue. So, Are you uh, surprised you know, the prime minister hasn't said more on that? I'm not surprised the prime minister hasn't said more on that. In fact, I think we, we should be happy he hasn't criticized it uh, any, to any great length. So uh, from a Canadian perspective, I wouldn't expect much more out of uh, Justin Trudeau. But uh, liberals uh, from one point in time would have been more friendly to that issue. But so on that issue, he's had some success. You know, he's pushing some of his uh, other agenda items through there, uh, looking at prototype walls down outside of uh, San Diego uh, near the Mexican border there. So there's things he certainly is doing. But then there's a to a lot of distractions that are, uh, in most cases, self-inflicted. Uh, he certainly talked a lot about the FBI, uh, throwing a lot of uh, uh, trash at them over uh, time and, of course, addressing them uh, today. Do you think the FBI is biased against Donald Trump? I do not, but I think it, uh, they, you know, with some of the comments that were unveiled in emails from uh, certain uh, people at the Bureau, it's very easy for him to paint them that way. And again, to his fans, they don't even really need that confirmation for him from him. Uh, so unfortunately, it, it's sort of like if you look at former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, who was very good at getting his message out, which shocked a lot of people. And he was also very beaten up and criticized by his political opponents. And really, if you're going to criticize someone like Donald Trump or uh, Rob Ford, who are much better communicators than uh, either are given credit for, you have to be impeccably clean and free of any potential uh, place where they can point to bias or unfairness or, or anything of that nature. Because at the end of the day, Donald Trump is a better communicator than almost anyone. He's better than the people beating him up on it. And if you give him an inch to de- discredit you, he will take a mile. So Donald Trump's a better communicator because he's getting his message across. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's unexpected and it's simplistic and it works. 
even if people appear not to like him. I mean, it, again, you know, it, it, it's got to the point now where it doesn't matter what he says. If it's coming from Donald Trump, there's a certain segment of the population, and it, it appears to be growing in some say, in some circles, that that it just it's, it's nobody likes this guy. And how can you get anything done? It doesn't matter how brilliant you are. It's the team around you. It's the people. It's convincing the people to do something. So... Uh, has it got to the point where his personality has become a detriment, or can he get past this? I mean, look, we, the, the major test is going to be on the uh, tax reform vote, and it, it's looking tough for him. And if he can pull that out, I think, pull that off, and he's certainly surprised a lot of people when he's had successes, including that election uh, just over a year ago, uh, that that he he can make up for the deficiencies that uh, he shows in his personality in dealing with people. So if he can win a vote like that, I think the uh, obituaries, uh, you know, uh, the political obituaries of Donald Trump should probably stop being written. What about uh, the whole Roy Moore scenario? Uh, and, and he didn't really, uh, his reaction to it, because he, he, um, he conceded defeat. He uh, apparently called Jones and congratulated him, the Democratic winner in Alabama. Uh, he didn't seem to fight that one like he has in the past. How come? No, you know, he served well, uh, a few reasons. One, uh, I think this is a good reminder that if you uh, nominate alleged sex offenders for uh, elected office, that they're probably not a great candidate. So Roy Moore is certainly a good reminder of that. Be careful who you nominate. But Donald Trump wasn't, you know, he, he allowed himself towards the end when it looked like Moore might win to get a bit invested in that race. And that was definitely a political mistake. But, uh, you know, he was not for Roy Moore in the primary. He was not for Roy Moore in the runoff. Uh, he was lukewarm until a couple weeks ago, really, on, Luke, uh, on Roy Moore at all, who lost a lot of elections and nominations in Alabama before. So, I mean, it's, mm. you know, Of course, uh, being a Republican in Alabama, you're at a huge uh, advantage electorally. But Roy Moore's managed to lose election uh, and nomination uh, there before. So it's not a huge surprise that he was unable to, uh, you know, pull pull this one off because that's sort of par for the course. So the president, you know, good for him for calling uh, Senator-elect Jones to congratulate him. He showed a lot more grace and class than Roy Moore, who still is, you know, last I heard, I'm not sure he's uh, actually ever conceded defeat to the president showed some grace in class on that. Good for him. He was the right thing to do. Uh, he made a mistake in supporting Luther Strange, who was a bit tainted because of the corruption of the governor who appointed him to the seat. Had uh, Congressman Mo Brooks, who was a very early Trump supporter in the uh, uh, in the Republican presidential primaries, very good on Trump issues, especially the uh, border security wall. Had it been him against Roy Moore or him against Luther Strange one-on-one in that first primary, I think he would have won. He would have won... Uh, uh, Tuesday night, uh, 10, 15 percent of the vote. So they nominated the worst possible candidate there. The president allowed himself to uh, get involved a bit, but I think he doesn't have to wear it too much because he was never overly enthusiastic about uh, Judge Moore. And he did kind of qualify himself by saying, you know, it's my object. You know, it's 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 uh, what I have to do here is support the people that are running for the party and that want to uh, help him in the Senate. Obviously, has he damaged himself by supporting more? I mean, many Republicans consider. <laughs> to win that he didn't get in. 
Look, it, that was a lose-lose, wasn't it? You know, you're Mitch McConnell. You don't want to lose the seat and the reliable vote. Uh, but uh, you also know that, you know, yeah, Roy Moore was tweeting for the world to see that he's going to win the seat and then he's coming after you. So absolutely, I mean, you, you, you lose with Roy Moore not winning the seat, but you lose even more with Roy Moore joining the Republican caucus. And uh, what's really good long term for the Republican brand now the Republicans, you know, in 2010 and 2012, dominated a lot of goofy candidates for the United States Senate. So there was a candidate in Delaware, Christine McDonald, who beat a uh, former governor and congressman, Mike Castle, very popular, was the only Republican who could win that seat. And Christine O'Donnell, there's something about her being a witch, and she, you know, had made ridiculous comments about uh, self-gratification and all sorts of crazy things. And that auto and, and Sharon Angle in 2010, also in the Nevada who made some very awful comments about what she would like to do to her opponent, Harry Reid. And that not only cost the Republicans those seats, they cost them other seats. So the good thing, but eventually Republicans got smart and started nominating better mainstream candidates. And that's one of the reasons why in 2014 and 2016, they were able to regain and keep control of the United States Senate. Now, this time what was good is Roy Moore only hurt the Republicans in Alabama. So they only lost one seat instead of that seat plus another because Roy Moore was just that toxic. The other thing is Steve Bannon, who was very much out in front and in favor of Roy Moore, and I think had a very uh, couple of very bizarre rally speeches in Alabama, he's going to be damaged and taken less seriously, and that will allow the Republicans to nominate better candidates uh, for Congress and the Senate if Bannon is taken less seriously. Uh, Steve Bannon was my next question. Where does this leave his role? I mean, many have said, although not directly involved with the White House anymore, that he still has Trump's ear. Uh, Obviously, um, uh, Steve Bannon uh, said some, like you say, pretty charged things during uh, rallies and such. There was also, I believe, a senator from Tennessee that basically called him a disheveled drunk. He looked like (laughs) a disheveled drunk. Uh, How does that sort of thing resonate? So I think if you're the this president particularly, you don't like being challenged. You don't like being challenged by people. You also don't like people having, uh, you know, taking credit for you. So, you know, George W. Bush is a very, I think, humble man. And he was a lot more in control of his administration than either Karl Rove or Dick Cheney. But he didn't care that people talked. And he he said now that, uh, you know, none of those stories were true. But he at the time, he didn't care. It didn't get under his skin. He never fired Dick Cheney uh, from the ticket or relegated him to a place of unimportance in his administration because people said Dick Cheney was actually in charge. Uh, But Donald Trump is very different. Donald Trump likes to take credit for everything good. And if Steve Bannon is taking too much credit for the rise of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's the one who's still president, and Donald Trump's not going to tolerate that. So I think, you know, and then also having Steve Bannon challenge his preferred candidate for the nomination, they're Luther Strange, and Luther Strange was certainly not a perfect candidate, but he would have likely, uh, overwhelmingly likely, have won the uh, seat still uh, if he had been the candidate Tuesday night. So I think that's going to sit bad for the president. So I think uh, you're going to see Steve Bannon have the less and less of the ear of the president. And sure, Breitbart has a uh, large and important constituency, especially for the president. But I think at the end of the day, uh, those folks are going to be more in line with the with, with Donald Trump than Steve Bannon and Breitbart. Uh, does this latest scenario really pigeonhole him as an extreme right wing person? 
I don't think uh, he would uh, mind that. No, I yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. But and I mean, I, like a lo- he got a lot of credibility, I guess, with the fringes who thought maybe he had something to say. But now we're sort of seeing his true colors. Not that we didn't before, uh, but now we're certainly seeing confirmation of all of this. Uh, the fact that after what he said, the the whole thing has kind of gone down in flames. How much credibility does he have um, now compared to prior to the loss of Moore? Well, yeah, losing's never good if you're someone like that. So he'll, he'll lose it on that. But I think there's another important issue where he made a mistake. Uh, Steve Bannon likes to portray himself as this uh, tribune of the working man of the, you know, classic American, middle America. Uh, the fact of the matter is he's a former Wall Street banker who made a fortune in Hollywood. He owns part of the distribution rights of Seinfeld. So this is a guy, you know, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David each got, I think it was uh, $500 million uh, for the syndication deal. Steve Bannon didn't get that much, but he he's doing very well off of uh, liberal comedians. So there's that. There's also that, you know, he bragged in Alabama about the fact that he got into a better school and he's better educated than Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough was born and raised in Alabama and attended the University of Alabama. So when you start talking about your Ivy League education being better than the mm. school that the people you're talking to aspired to go to and love the football team. And, you know, uh, if, if, you, mm. if you've been in Alabama on a weekend, you've heard people yep. yell roll tide. It, it just, how can you claim to be the everyman? when that's what you're selling. So I think people are going to start realizing that this guy is a bit of a showman. Uh, Will sexual allegations come back to haunt Trump? Uh, probably not. He's uh, and they they should. But he look he uh, he weathered the storm during the election. That was really tough. Uh, we're in a different climate now. Uh, but those allegations are very well known. The other allegations that uh, are likely to uh, continue coming out, I think you know, will be received in the same way by those who like him. And I don't think there's many people left for him to lose. Where does this win in Alabama leave the Democrats? Is this momentum for them? How do they move forward with this? They certainly should not read too much into this. Now, it's always good to win a seat, and it's always good particularly to win a safe seat of the other parties. But if you think back to, I guess it was 2009 or 2010, um, and the Republicans picked up a seat that was once held by Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. uh, a a very safe uh, Democratic seat. Ted Kennedy held it for decades. Before that, his brother held that and had been Republican since 1952. Uh, Safest Democratic state in in the country. And the Republicans picked it up, and then they lost it at the next general election. And not only that, but it wasn't a great sign of a insurgent of uh, a Republican majority, because they still lost the Senate in that year's midterm in 2010, and they did not uh, regain it in 2012 in Barack Obama's uh, re-election campaign. So you shouldn't read too much into these uh, special elections. Now, even worse for the Democrats compared to the Republicans, Scott Brown won for a number of reasons. One, Martha Coakley, who he was running against, was a flawed candidate, not nearly as flawed as Roy Moore. But what was more important was Obamacare at the time was an issue where uh, nation conser- the nation's conservatives and moderates were uprising against it. They did not like it. Uh, they, they were not satisfied with it and were concerned. And that fueled Scott Brown's election, where if you look at Doug Jones's election, Frankly, the only issue I can point to is Roy Moore is why Doug Jones was not elected. It wasn't Roy. So Moore this was won. more. So this was more a protest vote by those in Alabama. What message were they sending? It was that please don't nominate uh, alleged sex offenders uh, to uh, be my United States senator. I think. Uh, and, and again, as I said earlier, Roy Moore has lost the 
plenty of elections down in Alabama, both uh, general and primary elections. Uh, so it's not a huge surprise that he wasn't able to win an election in Alabama where folks have known him. And he's been controversial for a very, very long time. And I, and I understand the African-American vote was a huge part of this, uh, with Jones getting like 76 percent or sorry, 96 percent yeah. of that. Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, Roy Moore's wife the night before the uh, special election said that their, one of their attorneys is a Jew. Uh, and oh, that's my. Exactly that, was quite, that, was quite the, that was quite the sound clip, wasn't it? And, well, and then, which is getting less attention, is she said that they have fellowship yeah. with blacks. And yeah. so she turned out to be right because 5% of them voted for her husband, but it was a very small amount. And yes, definitely played as big as a role in the electorate uh, this time in Alabama as they did in 2008 when Barack Obama was on the ele- on the ballot and historic uh, black turnout uh, in, in parts uh, to uh, you know break that historical barrier, which was you know a wonderful thing for the nation in spite of the uh, the, the the candidates perhaps being wrong, but it was a definitely a great and historic moment. Uh, and there was a lot of talk after that that black turnout. Uh, you can't you can't expect uh, Democrats to get the the same African American participation in the electorate without someone like Barack Obama on the election. And Doug Jones certainly uh, proved that wrong. So with the right uh, GOTV uh, campaign, which was uh, a really strong campaign for the Democrats in Alabama, they can replicate that Obama style turnout. How will the Republicans, especially in Alabama, view th- this loss as far as missing this vote? Look, I mean, you know, the other Republican senator for Alabama decided not to uh, vote for Roy Moore. And if you look at why he lost, it was because Republicans, you know, Democrats showed up and they showed up big. And uh, the African-American numbers are indicative of that. But equally, if not more important, is that Republicans decided to either stay home or write in another candidate. The write-in votes would have made the difference. Those were probably overwhelmingly generally Republican supporters. So it was Republicans who decided that they would rather lose the seat than have Roy Moore in the United States Senate. So I think they got their wish on that. And they're going to have an opportunity for 2020 to nominate uh, someone else to run against Doug Jones if he's to seek re-election, which I'm sure he will, although some people are already suggesting he should run for president, which is frankly nonsense wow. but um, if he uh, although you know why well, not? that's he that's not a desperation seat. move is it holy smokes people said that about scott brown too which you know was a very similar situation and my thought on that at the time was why not he'll lose his re-election so he might as well you know mm. have fun and run for president and be able to sell a book after maybe uh, for doug jones it's the same thing but uh, look the republicans will nominate someone next time who isn't named roy moore uh, who hopefully will not have uh, hopefully will be able to campaign in every shopping mall in the state of Alabama. And uh, if, if they do that, the odds are overwhelming that they'll take the seat back. Michael Diamond has been with us, conservative political pundit, uh, talking about this week in Trump. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We all know how much uh, everyone loves Prime Minister Trudeau, not only uh, inside the country, but probably more outside the country. According to a new Angus Reid poll, our Prime Minister's popularity has fallen below 50% for the first time. (gasps) Oh my goodness, I cannot believe this. For the first time since taking office two years ago, his approval rating has dropped below 50%. Is that a bad thing? Because I would think most leaders after two years in to still be on that kind of honeymoon would probably be pretty happy. Uh, For the first time, more Canadians, 49%, say they actually disapprove of his performance. 
I think that's what the article states here, is that they're just surprised they can't believe it's actually going down. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe is with us, uh, professor of political science, McMaster University, on the Hub Now. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So should they be celebrating this or uh, are saying, oh, no, we're in trouble? I mean, at the end of the day, to still have uh, this kind of popularity two years in, that's quite an accomplishment, is it not? Or is this the sign things are slipping? Well, uh, maybe it's both at the same time, a politician's answer. But, uh, I mean, certainly for uh, for a leader to still be uh, as popular as they're unpopular, uh, you know, at about half people are thinking... Uh, that they're doing a good job or of approving and half not approving after two years, I think is quite an achievement. It's in a good position to be in with a, the next election two years away. On the other hand, I mean, Trudeau was an important calling card for the Liberal Party. He was uh, an important asset in convincing Canadians to vote for the Liberals last time out. And so the fact that his, his star is fading a bit, as we'd expect, from having to make a number of you know decisions, as well as people just getting sick of seeing him every day, uh, you know, it does make it harder for them to think about how they're going to position themselves in the next election. Is this still all about personality over policy at this point? Because he is a pretty likable leader. Uh, well, speak for yourself. For some, for some. <laughs> you know, I'm just being speaking in generalities here. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, he's managed to uh, portray himself in a way that a lot of Canadians uh, find that they can identify uh, with him or the very least, uh, feel that the positions he's taking are ones that they agree with. And so, I mean, he has been successful in that way. And, I mean, certainly internationally, and this probably also helps his uh, internal uh, numbers, uh, he's generally been uh, pretty well portrayed, uh, seen as a world leader who maybe, along with Angela Merkel, uh, is bucking a bit the trends to a more reactionary style of politics based more on kind of uh, narrow identities and having to protect countries from change. So, I mean, I think those things uh, help uh, in, in that kind of case. But, I mean, again, it's the personal likability is, is tied also to the fact that he stands for something. Uh, I mean, if he was simply, uh, you know, standing, you know, smiling and shaking hands and it didn't seem like there was anything behind that, I think it would be much harder to sustain that kind of popularity. How much does the world perception of him play uh, here? Uh, and would you say his popularity is much greater in the outside world than it is here? I guess that's not uncommon. But do we look at his uh, his uh, people responding to him on the world stage and think, wow, the world likes him, maybe we should like him too. We don't realize what we have here. Uh, yeah, it's a bit like Canadian bands. That too well I was just stage. about to say that, Peter. Uh, Honestly, I was. It reminds me of Brian Adams. We didn't realize how good he was till the rest of the world took him from us. Is that what it's like? Well, I mean, there's that aspect to it. Uh, I, I mean, that's, I think, part of human nature, that uh, when when other people are responding positively to something that you think is somehow your own, you feel a sense of pride. And uh, obviously a politician can make use of that to, to sustain support for themselves. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a fairly natural uh, aspect to that. And, I mean, Canadians are probably well-trained uh, in that uh, approach because we generally feel that somehow we're shunned from the attention of the world. So when one of our own does well, uh, you know, there's a bit of an extra, uh, you know, pride, I think, in, in uh, how people react. And so that's certainly a resource, but it's a fickle one. And so I think any politician realizes that you can be the toast of the international scene one day and then somehow be seen as either a has-been or on the wrong side of history the next. And so, I mean, clearly the Liberals are using it at the moment, and no doubt for their fundraising it's uh, useful for their, particularly their supporters, to, to point out how their, you know, how their leader is uh, one of the you know, key leaders in the world or is seen positively by this or that important group. Um, but, you know, in the long run, you can't, I think, win elections on that, but it, it is a useful 
thing to have uh, to raise money and maybe to sustain a bit of popularity between elections. What about uh, of his handling of the United States and particularly Donald Trump? Does does Donald Trump make the rest look good? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in a way uh, Trudeau can't really do wrong in the moment. Uh, I mean, even if he does do wrong, uh, he just seems to uh, the majority of Canadians. I mean, certainly there's some Canadians who uh, are quite pro-Trump. Uh, but I'd say, say for the sort of great mass, uh, particularly the political class in Canada, uh, I mean, his basic competence and functional uh, capacity to deal with truth and uh, deal with situations as they are rather than as he might wish them to be uh, makes him a pretty attractive leader. And so, you know, even on some files where we can question, is he, is he necessarily developed the best negotiating position around NAFTA? Has he been too keen to sort of play, uh, you know, play the friendly uh, the friendly helper beside Trump rather than questioning him. I mean, people can raise these issues, but I don't think it's really going to harm him because in the eyes of, I think, many Canadians, uh, he just looks good in comparison. Uh, and we can say the exact reverse for Trump because we're hearing now of Trump bias to the point where it doesn't matter what Trump says, good or bad. He's just so, uh, just so out there. He's just so divisive that people don't even hear anything if he does say something good or a policy that they like. It just goes uh, right over the head. I, I mean, we certainly see the, bi- the bias working to the opposite there. Do you not think now? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think all politicians get, uh, you know, people put them in a certain place. They get, uh, someone once explained to me politics is like a cartoon or a comic strip, and every day you have the same characters and you want to see what comes out of their mouth. And so, I mean, yeah, I think Trump has become a particular kind of character who's uh, either loved or hated, depending on one's take on him. And regardless of what he says, it's going to be seen uh, through that glass of either, yeah, this is an admiral thing he said or a terrible thing he said, regardless of the content. Uh, getting back to this poll, 46% uh, favoring uh, Trudeau, uh, and then 39% Jagmeet Singh ahead of Andrew Scheer at 35%. What does that say to you? Well, I mean, I think when you get to the opposition leaders, uh, both of them have problems. So, I mean, I think Andrew Scheer has had uh, issues in terms of people really uh, tuning into what he's about. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's odd in a way that he's so low in the, sort of the low 30s uh, on that uh, approval rating, although that's kind of consistent with the core conservative vote that uh, Harper was able to maintain, and it's a sort of baseline he probably is happy to work from. Uh, but, you know, but he's been there now about half a year, and uh, it's not really clear that he's uh, lit up Canadians. Now, it may be that Canadians don't know much about him. He's been fairly low profile, with the exception of uh, you know some good performances in a question period, particularly pressing Morneau. Um, but you know that's about the extent of it. I, I don't think he's really articulated a vision where people can say, well, here's what he stands for, and and you know I can I can really get a sense of the man. So I think that will be a challenge for him. I think we've seen that in the by-elections where, you know, he lost, for instance, in Vancouver. It wasn't really clear what the conservative message was uh, in in that case. That was would be new and, and compelling. And for Jagmeet Singh, I mean, he does have a high approval rating of people who know him, but uh, part of the issue is that there's a fairly large number of people who have no clue who he is. And so I think there, too, uh, the NDP is a third party. Uh, they don't have a, a soapbox for him in Parliament because he doesn't have a seat in Parliament. So the manner in which he manages to find his way into that national conversation is going to be a difficult one. So the people who who know of him like him, although probably the people who know of him are people who are prone to want to like him. Uh, A lot of Canadians don't know who he is yet. 
How do you think this is going to change the dynamic of the next election compared to the last? Last one, obviously, Trudeau, Harper, and and Thomas Mulcair. Now, we, you know, Trudeau is the old guy, and by that I mean the experienced statesman here. Uh, Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh, both a couple of years younger than him. Not that Trudeau's old by any means, but this is certainly going to change the complexion of debate, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the very least, uh, yeah, it's it's a younger people, uh, people with different kinds of baggage uh, that are there. And big style differences, too, when you think about it. Uh, yeah, there's that as well. I mean, I think uh, the big difference is going to be that uh, the government who's going to re- uh, sort of defend their record will be the Liberal Party standing between the Conservatives and the NDP, rather than last time when it was, uh, you know, the Harper government, and the issue was which between the, the Liberals and the NDP would be the main opponent to it. So I think it's going to have a different flavor as a result of that. Uh, the real flavor, I think, is going to depend a lot on how uh, the Conservative Party de- defines their position. Uh, you know, is Andrew Scheer going to, you know, really double down on a sort of uh, harder conservative platform and, and push the more conservative side of the Harper years? Or is he going to pull back and do more of a Patrick Brown and say, no, I mean, the, the world has changed. We need slightly different policies. But here's a conservative version on the sorts of things that Justin Trudeau is trying to do. So, I mean, depending on that, we'll have, I think, very different elections. If it's, you know, more of the Harper, I think we'll see a bit of a rerun of last time where Trudeau is going to say, I'm the only one who can prevent this return of a conservative agenda. Uh, But if it's a sort of more Patrick Brown uh, platform, I think Trudeau is going to be in a harder place to try and define how he stands out as different. And then add on to that the fact that Jagmeet Singh will take interest from a lot, a lot of the vote that's swinging to the left. I mean, uh, and traditionally liberals moving more to the left in the last election or so. How big of a challenge is that uh, for Trudeau to make sure that Sheer doesn't come up through the, uh, through the middle? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it will be, uh, I, I think there will be a change in a number of places that will be significant. So, I mean, part of the question is whether Jagmeet Singh can hold on to uh, the NDP vote in Quebec. If that goes, does it go to the Liberals? So I think there will be a very different dynamic there, depending on, on what his capacity is. Uh, on the other hand, I think he gives uh, the NDP more strength with young people, and in certainly expanding the electorate by adding a lot of younger voters in the last election was part of Trudeau's path to victory. And so in that way, certainly uh, Singh might play the spoiler uh, and make it more difficult for the Liberals to win a number of seats that they won, particularly in the suburbs of big cities. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly, uh, Jagmeet Singh plays an important spoiler role, and it's not inconceivable that we end up with a minority government after the next election, you know, particularly if 38, 39 percent that uh, Trudeau got in 2015 was his best day. You know, if he dips a bit lower, then we're likely in minority government territory. Hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, Jagmeet Singh, especially for the NDP, I mean, you know, they were pretty much asleep at the wheel for the last couple of years. It was hard to tell what was going on. Uh, this guy, very charismatic, very stylish, uh, certainly getting a lot of people's attention. Uh, that being said, how does he sustain that attention? And, uh, you know, I'll go for the obvious question here. The fact that he is, uh, you know, a practicing Sikh, he believes in his religion, he's wearing his kirpan, he's, he's got a turban. Does that, are, are we still living in a society where that will work against him? Uh, yes, we are living in a society where that will work against him. Uh, I mean, the question is to how much and... Uh, you know, part of that is to, to ask whether the people who would be likely to vote for the NDP are the people who are going to be uh, most affected by that, or if it's in fact, you know, people are less likely to vote for him, but they weren't likely to vote for him in the first place. So 
Uh, I'm not sure it's going to have a huge impact, but certainly uh, I think already in how he's thought about presenting himself, the sorts of stories and messages he's crafting has to take into account the fact that he has to deal with uh, certain forms of uh, discrimination or discomfort uh, in parts of the electorate. So, I mean, that that on top of a rags-to-riches story, as opposed to being born with a silver spoon in his mouth and an elite, as some may view Trudeau, how does that play in his advantage? Well, I mean, again, I think it's a matter of how you tell the story, right? And there's a variety of different stories one can tell, and, and part of it's a fight about which one's going to be centered in the campaign. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, you can tell some of those stories, uh, I mean, part of it, though, is the stories you tell have to also uh, match with what your offer is to the electorate. Uh, and so, you know, a rags to riches story works with some sorts of policies and maybe works less well with others. I, mean, I think in many ways, uh, Singh's bigger uh, issue in the next couple of years is trying to rebuild an organization and a financial base to the NDP, which, mm. uh, I mean, I think uh, is, is in not great shape in terms of its finances and presumably... Uh, is backed as a sort of third party. So to to find a capacity to mobilize people to run a campaign where you can actually make yourself known is going to be, you know, a difficult one. Uh, You know, and particularly if there is a sort of shift from being popular in Quebec to maybe be doing better in the suburbs, well, how do you uh, build the electoral organization necessary to actually run credible and potentially winning campaigns in areas where the NDP hasn't done that well? in the past 25 years. How is Andrew Scheer doing as opposition leader? Uh, I think he may have the Thomas Mulcair curse. <laughs> He's done best in question period. Yeah, uh, It's not clear whether that's really uh, turning people uh, onto him outside of the Ottawa bubble. Uh, he seems quieter than Thomas Mulcair, though. Uh, yes, uh, he's quieter. He has perhaps less of the intensity. Yeah, uh, he's maybe less of the prosecutor in chief and a bit more prone to some of the kind of exaggerations and hyperbole of question period. And in the long run, that might not suit him as well. Um, I mean, I think he has a problem in having lost these uh, by-elections in Vancouver and uh, in Lac Saint Jean. I mean, these are there's a kind of a question about what his offer is if he's going to sustain the support that uh, the Conservative Party has at the moment. And so, you know, there I think will be the bigger question. We haven't had a lot of clues about how he's going to sort of redefine the Conservatives' pitch. Uh, his his run for leadership in part was based on being inoffensive on the one hand, but then also playing to kind of a social conservative base and the party on the other. Um, how he's going to put that together for a pitch to all of Canadians, uh, I don't think he's really shown his hand yet. Uh, does he have a softer, gentler approach? Well, I think that's how he's wanted to uh, to portray himself. Uh, but I think if you want to be softer and gentler, you nevertheless have to have something aggressive that you're going to be <laughs> soft and gentle about. Mm. Uh, I mean, otherwise, uh, particularly against uh, a very sort of high-profile uh, Trudeau government, I mean, both at the level of image, but also trying to do different things, uh, being kind of soft and gentle uh, may also be a recipe for being ignored. I mean, you have to explain yeah. what you're going to be doing differently. Uh, is he doing a better job than Ron Ambrose did? Uh, it's hard to it's hard to compare because yeah. he has, in a sense, a bigger job. He has to now hold together Conservative Party. I think, you know, for uh, Ron Ambrose, he was more or less guaranteed that people would uh, toe the line and wait for the new leader. Uh, so, I mean, he has a, a greater range of party-building uh, roles to do. But in some ways, I think, you know, Rona Ambrose certainly presented uh, more colorfully to Canadians, right? There's, she was someone who uh, people took up and uh, took notice as she spoke and, and uh, led the Conservatives in that period. 
um, and was able to sustain their their position in the polls. There hasn't been a, that much of a bump since uh, Andrew Scheer has taken over in terms of, of the support. So, um, yeah, I don't know if he's really outperformed her yet, but he does have a broader job. Uh, you know, when you're actually the leader, you have, I think, a harder job marshalling the party, but also ensuring that the broader party organization is in place and is working well. I uh, can't let you go without uh, talking about provincial politics. I'm going to completely T-bone you here because we haven't asked you about this. Uh, in in provincial um, uh, politics, uh, Kathleen Wynne uh, going ahead with a lawsuit against Patrick Brown because he said some things that uh, weren't correct in regard to her testimony at the by-election bribery trial in Sudbury. Why does he not just apologize and move on? Uh, if they're trying to sort of paint a Bill Davis type of of, uh, softer, gentler uh, government. Why not just uh, take the high road, apologize, do what's right, and move on? Is this not what what is making people cynical about politics? He's letting. I think he's letting them dictate the narrative. No. Yeah, that's my reading. But uh, you know, they aren't idiots. So you know, yeah. the question is, what? I mean, I mean, part of it may be that they think every time that uh, Kathleen Wynne talks about this, yeah, what it people, reminds people. Yeah, yeah, people see her in the witness box, and I mean, to them, that's her in court. So it may be that they they feel that. Does he need that though? I mean, gee, I mean, hasn't this government done enough to hang itself? I mean, why grab the thread? Stand back and let it implode, and don't get caught up in the dirt. Yeah. Well. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it may be the other thing he doesn't want is a series of newspaper headlines of Patrick Brown apologizes for, uh, you know, for libeling the, the premier. I mean, maybe what that's about, uh, the, what they don't want to see, and they see that used then in a series of election ads subsequently about, you know, here's Patrick Brown, he'll say anything, look, he libeled the premier. Plus, we're, uh, doesn't this also draw attention to the conservatives' own situation and scandals within their own choosing of party leaders? Why would you want to go there? Well, I mean, I think that's probably why uh, Kathleen Wynne has brought that back in the past week, right? Because uh, she sees what's yeah. happening around the, the Hamilton, West Ancaster, Dundas uh, nomination, for instance. And uh, Is there a story there? Is there a story just like Kathleen Wynne's, just like uh, the Sudbury story? Uh, well, if by the Sudbury story you mean that there's really nothing there, maybe, or if there is something <laughs> there, maybe. I mean, it could go either way. I mean, clearly something a bit funny happened there. Funny things happen in nominations frequently, but this seems a bit... You know, exact. Uh, you know, more extreme. But uh, having not been there or seen it, you know, I don't want to to push too far. But it certainly has been a difficult season for Patrick Brown with a large number of these uh, nominations where there seemed to be funny business going on. And so, you know, the question is, was it just that people were looking more closely, or you know, has Patrick Brown really been trying to put his stamp on who runs for the Conservatives under his leadership? And is this the pot calling the kettle black then, when it comes to w- w- what's going on in Sudbury, what went on in Sudbury? Uh, well, I think if you go and begin opening up uh, other parties' nomination processes, uh, it makes it a bit harder for you to kind of keep the light uh, off mm-hmm. of your own. So, I mean, certainly there's that aspect. And, I mean, maybe it's it's been a, a, a strategic, strategic error by the opposition parties to emphasize that sort of internal politics of the Liberal Party when, you know, you could be instead paying attention to, you know, the ongoing question of the you know, a limit uh, of wiping the hard drives and the gas mm. plant scandal and a variety of other uh, ethical mishaps, which were not, you know, internal party things, but, you know, directly uh, influenced the business of the Ontario government. Peter Graham has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.